Uh, first of all, I just wanted to thank Team 2 for their music. It's often a question I have in my head, who preaches to the preacher? And you just preach to me, so thank you very much. Uh, the songs, the music, was just I felt really penetrating to the heart. And actually, I'd swapped my sermon around a little bit while I was listening, and I just wanted to read the words of one of those songs, which actually I think has really, over the years, uh, ministered to my heart and that heart of worship song. I'll just read some of the lyrics. It's like when the music fades, all is stripped away, I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. Um, you know, I'm going to bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you've required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus, the king of endless worth. No one could express how much you deserve, Lord. Though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. And I'm going to bring you more than a song. I just love that idea. And if you know the background of the song with Matt Redman, they were going through a bit of a dry period in their church and they were sort of going through the motions. And so the pastor one day said, you know what? I'm sick of singing songs where your hearts aren't in it, my heart's not in it, we're just going to stop with the music. So what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the band, we're going to get rid of the songs, and we're not going to have anything for a few weeks. And so for a few weeks, they had no songs, no worship band, no nothing. And at one point, I think in one of the sermons or one of the sessions together, one of the church services together, the pastor simply said, if anyone's got a song, we're just going to bring it out a cappella. And so they did. And all of a sudden, all these kind of songs just emerged from the congregation and they slowly brought back the, um, the music, brought back the band, etc. And this song emerged out of that. He actually wrote this song during that period. And I just think that's so poignant and so fitting for us as a church because I really feel, like I've said all along, we don't want to be going through the motions. And so when we hear some of that today and we're singing with our hearts, how much more so our real lives, how much more so that... In our lives, Christ's love would so grip our hearts that when we're out in the world and there's circumstances that are swirling around, dark circumstances, traumatic circumstances, depressing circumstances, we are well lit. We glow. And that doesn't mean like in a kind of hairy fairy kind of fairy floss kind of way. That means in a solid, earthy kind of you're anchored to something beyond yourself kind of way. And so as we go through this sermon, obviously we're into the, the mega series. And today I've entitled this sermon, this session, number six in our mega series, which as we know stands for Meet God Almighty. I've entitled it Seth the Third and Cain the First. Seth the Third and Cain the First. Got to say it a bit more slowly or you'll lisp. But Seth the Third, Cain the First. And we'll be looking predominantly around Genesis 4 to 6 if you wanted to turn there. But as we... Think about the mega series. Remember, we're putting ourselves into the shoes of people, all the sandals. We're putting ourselves into their footsteps and we're trying to see what they saw of God. So we're trying to feel what they felt of God. We've seen Adam, Eve, you know, the bring back the Wonder Women kind of sermon, which has been interesting. The uh, sermons on the serpent, the sermons on Cain and Abel from Rudgy. They're all back there in the web. Go and have a look if you want. But with all that in mind, and what I talked about with the heart of worship, what is it that grips your heart? What is it that grips your heart? Maybe that's too strong a language. Maybe you don't feel anything grips your heart. But I think 
depending on your circumstances, depending on your personality and so forth, there is something that grips your heart. It might not feel like it's a grip. It might not feel like it's a compelling kind of thing. But I can almost guarantee there is something that is gripping your heart, something that is driving you, something that you're willing to sacrifice for, something that you're willing to give up time for, give up money for. And that, whatever that is, is what is going to drive your behaviour, drive your, um, your thoughts, your feelings, whatever it is that grips your heart. You know, this week I had an opportunity to spend a week with a psychologist, two psychologists actually, driving around the country as we roll out this program for the company that I work for, a bit of a wellness program. And it became evident to me as we got into our discussions about religion and philosophy and all those cool things you're not supposed to talk about, politics, sex, etc. It became very clear to me that many people and my psychologist friends as well really see Christianity as as probably a good thing, but just sort of the values of it the behaviours of it, you know, they're helping other people. And I was sort of able to say, you know what, like we've helped many people as a church. You know, I mentioned the fencing down in the valley, but I also mentioned the fact that I hate fencing. So why was I there? And I was able to talk about the love of Christ compelling us. I was able to talk about what grips my heart. It's not just a behavioural system. It is being inspired by a noble theme, being inspired by the living Lord Jesus. And again, I ask you, what grips your heart? And as you think about that, as you think about what is it that grips your heart, what is it that motivates you, what is it that drives you, I want to ask that you do this, and I'm going to pray about it. I want to ask that you open up your heart to the Lord, you orientate on Him through the Holy Spirit, and you simply say, is this going to be worth it in the long run? Whatever it is that's driving me, whatever it is that grips my heart, whatever it is that's compelling me, is it worth it? And I don't want this to be a religious, so, oh, it's Jesus that drives me. or it's No, I want you to be absolutely honest. What is it that drives you most of the time? So let's pray about that because that's not something that I can talk you into. It's not something I can kind of encourage you into even. I can sort of maybe point us in the right direction, but it's really the Holy Spirit. So Father, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Holy Spirit, speak. Do what you always do, which is bring truth. Bring truth into the deepest part of our hearts so that we might know you. and We might be freed from the shackles. We might be freed from the contaminants that course through our veins. We might be freed from the blurriness of vision and the the fog that often clouds and congests and distorts. Oh, Father, grip our hearts with a noble thing. Grip our hearts again, I pray, with that which is right, with that which is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Grip our hearts with that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might have seen this on TV, but they put Koshi and Sam onto a lie detector test, right? So we've been talking a lot about who God is and assumptions and expectations and then the reality of who God is. So they asked them four key questions. Have you ever smoked pot? Do you know what they said? They all said yes. Hey, they're in TV. What do you expect? Are there any colleagues you don't like? So this is all hooked up to the truth detector, lie detector, depending on how you want to look at the polygraph. Koshi and Sam both said no, but both were lying. Have you ever gossiped about your colleagues? All said yes. Have you ever stolen? 
So Sam said, yes, but only once. They were fake fingernails from Grace Brothers. But apparently she was lying. It wasn't just once that she stole. Have you ever had any work done? Koshi was asked, as in, you know, Botox or plastic surgery. He said, no, he was lying. But then he followed up with, but look at me. Why would I be lying about that? Which is a fair point. So um, anyway, the point there that I'm trying to make is that oftentimes even um, people that we maybe respect, they aren't even sure necessarily about what's driving them. They're not even sure necessarily about what it is they've done and what they haven't done. And we could argue about the effectiveness of a lie detector and so forth. But we know intuitively that it's easy to be self-deceived. It's, easily, it's easy to think we know the truth about something, and yet we don't. We're so far from the truth and reality. So how much more, you know, when we look at God, this divine being, this multidimensional divine being, How much more important is it to get that right? And how much more important is it to realize that we can actually be quite wrong? We can be quite wrong about how we see God. Imagine getting it wrong. I mean, imagine getting it wrong if you think he's, you know, he's just not there. As maybe some of our atheist friends would say, he's just, you know, he's just your sugar daddy. He's just your, your fairy godmother in the sky kind of thing. But what about if you're wrong? What about if you're wrong about that? I would say to my atheist friends, like you've got to be open to the scientific evidence, empirical evidence that you could be wrong. Or maybe you've just been reading some accounts in the Old Testament and you just think he's a genocidal, homicidal dictator. But what about if you're wrong? Imagine if you just think he's irrelevant. Maybe you're not even, because he is irrelevant, you're not even thinking that. Because he's irrelevant. It's just, whatever, I'll just live my life. But imagine you're wrong. Imagine you think he's just a force, an energy field, and you're wrong. Imagine you think he's on your side. Imagine you kill in his name. Imagine you enforce certain power structures in his name. You do all sorts of things in his name to protect the name of your church even. And you're wrong. You're wrong about who he is. You're seeing it wrong. You know, I think we all have to be open to the the possibility Even us who've been Christians perhaps for a long time, we have to be open to the possibility and humble enough to say in any conversation, I could be wrong, help me to listen to you. Help me to listen to God. Help me to listen to your word. But isn't it cool to imagine if we could see it right and God is who he says he is through his word and he's this magnificent person who has died for it. Imagine if we could see it right and feel it right. There's something really, I don't know, hopeful about that, isn't there? So what's really cool about our passages and so forth today is that we get to observe people seeing God right and seeing God wrongly. And we get to do it through the eyes of Seth III, who is the firstborn of humanity and, um, sorry, the thirdborn of humanity and Cain the first. So Seth III, Cain the first, right? We get to see it through their eyes in a sense. We get to see them seeing things either rightly or wrongly. And the question I want to ask as we go through the passage today is, what is gripping their hearts? What is it that's, um, that's compelling them, that's driving them? And is it worth it? Is it worth it for them? That's the question I kind of want to ask. Now, as I go through this, if certain questions are sparked in your mind or certain insights, you know, write them down or just log them away mentally and then bring them out at the end because there will be time to talk about some stuff at the end. We'll just have a discussion about the sermon. So 
If you want to open up, if you haven't already, I'm in Genesis 4. I am going to obviously skim through the passage. We don't have time to read through two chapters of Genesis. But again, this is your opportunity to go away tonight or through the week and read all of Genesis 4 through to 6. In verse 17, we see that Cain was intimate with his wife. So apparently there is a daughter of Adam and Eve. There's passage of hundreds of years uh, that have occurred. The, the earth is multiplying. You know, it's being populated. Cain nicks off because he's murdered his brother Abel. And eventually people begin to spread out and catch up with Cain in a sense. Cain is intimate with his wife. We're told in verse 17, she conceives and gives birth to Enoch. This is not Enoch of the guy that walked with God fame. This is another Enoch. Must have been a popular name back then. And then Cain became the builder, became the builder of a city. And he named that city Enoch after his son. So just imagine Cain's gone out. He's now involved in city building. So he's involved in the acquisition of food supplies, water supplies, um, waste deposits, trying to get rid of waste from the city, housing. Now, all the things that go into a city, he's busy. He's busy. So he's now sort of caught up in the day-to-day stuff. And remember, his daddy is Adam. Adam walked with God in the garden. We're not told where Adam is at this point, but Cain would have had a strong impression of who God is. He met with God. Remember, God came to him and said, sin is crouching at your door, Cain, but you need to master it. Did he master it? No, he didn't. He murdered his brother. And then God, in an act of grace, I don't know if you thought about this, he puts a mark on him to actually protect him. It's a mark of grace. God could have easily just let him go. And then as people populated the earth, it was what you killed your brother, blood for blood, you're dead. Well, God would have been quite right in saying, demanding an account for his blood and extinguishing his life there. Instead, he gives him grace. So what does Cain do with this grace? He goes out, he builds a city. And we continue down in verse 18, and we see a little bit of a family tree for Cain. And it says there in 18, verse 18 of Genesis 4, Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahajahel, etc., etc. And eventually we get to this guy called Lamech. Now, Raji did mention him briefly. We're just going to look at him here briefly. He's got two wives. All right, so within this city or cities that are growing, Lamech now takes two wives. And what it says there is that Ada... He's got these two wives named Ada and Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of nomadic herdsmen. So now we've got uh, basically shepherding, agriculture, that kind of stuff happening. His brother was named Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the flute. So he's the father of musicians. So now we've got entertainment, music, art. And then Zillah bore Tubal-Cain who made all kinds of bronze and iron tools. So now we've got metalwork. We've got technology. Um, and I love the way, well, I don't love it, but the way the commentary puts it is that several of Cain's descendants, his wife was presumably a daughter of Adam and Eve, are credited with significant cultural and technological advances, city building, Bedouin life, music and metalwork. So you can see what's gripping their hearts as people populate the earth. Music, getting your house, um, agriculture, you know, making sure you've got enough food and there's security and so forth. Technology, metalworking, life. But again, we have to say, where does it all end up? Is it worth it? And what is missing? 
What is missing in this account of Cain through to Lamech? Where does it all end up? It ends with a song, okay? It ends with a song in verse 23. So you've had all these cities being built. You've had this tech going on, music being played. And it's so interesting because, you know, we've got, there must have been so much going on, but there's only a little bit recorded. And so interesting because it finishes with this song. Cain's line finishes with this song, essentially, or the account of Cain's line finishes with this song. And it's this in verse 23. Lamech said to his wife, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. By the way, Ada and Zillah means honey and I think melody. Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times. So the writer of Genesis has deliberately showed us Cain through to his great-great-great-grandson Lamech and he's shown us the culmination of that line. And the culmination of that line, it's all messed up. Because you've got this guy called Lamech who kills someone just because he was a little bit wounded or got a bit, kills him. And then he's not, he's not depressed about that at all. He's actually proud of it. And he's so proud that he sings this song. Theologians have called it Lamech's sword song. You can see in, in most of your Bibles, it'll be indented to show that it's a song. So can you imagine someone killing someone else and then singing a song about it? And in particular saying, pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking. And he's written it for his wives. <laughs> he's, like a, he's written a love song for his wives about, look at me, I killed some people or I killed a guy. This is the culmination of Cain's line. This is the culmination of a bunch of people who are gripped by various things, their hearts are gripped by various things, and in the end it's Lamech. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And you can just see the glee in his voice almost through this song. I don't call it the sword song, I call it the APA AMU song, angry, proud, arrogant, all messed up. That's what that song is. You know, think about it. He probably killed with a weapon one of his sons had made. He probably killed with technology. So, you know, the, the human race has advanced. Cain probably killed his brother with a rock or something in a field or a club. Now they've got metal. Now they can kill more efficiently. And then that gift, that gift of grace that Cain was given, the gift of grace that brought about cities, brought about music, brought about technology, it's used to kill again. And what's accomplished for humanity in all that? What do these great accomplishments bring? They just bring power structures. So now you've got uh, Lamech, who is evidently in power over this guy or whoever he's killed. So now you have victor and victim. This is what humanity has come to. You've got conqueror and conquered with a happy song of murder for his two wives. Who, sorry, whose names actually mean Jewel and Melody. So it's literally Jewel and Melody, listen to me, I have killed a man. <laughs> so s- stupid. And what a picture, I think, for our, type, uh, for our times as well, where we've got this growing, growing inequality globally between rich and poor, strong and weak. The strong get stronger, the weaker get weaker, and the gap is growing. You can look at that statistically anywhere. Look it up yourselves. There's nothing wrong with technology in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with cities in and of themselves. Those are glorious things. We're supposed to do those kinds of music. Music's such a beautiful thing. But do you see how twisted it is here? 
And this is a real warning for artists everywhere. You can actually have an awesome art form and rubbish content. <laughs> you, can, you can literally, I think I've said this before, and I don't mean to be gross, but you can actually sing a beautiful song, write a beautiful painting of a dog doing a poo. It's still a dog doing a poo, guys. And you can apply that as a metaphor to any of those distasteful things in society. Sometimes you see it in hip-hop, but hip-hop isn't the only place where the art form is wonderful and clever and sophisticated and the content is rubbish. It's not a noble theme. You know, you, you Christians, you have a noble theme and you have the Holy Spirit empowering you, the most creative being we know of in the universe because he is God himself. And yet here we see Lamech take that gift and turn it into something ugly. Same, same with tech and everything. You know, we see very clearly that he has seen it wrong, but Lamech doesn't see that he's doing it wrong. He's not sorry. He's not concerned. He's a murdering, arrogant bigamist. He's happy and proud. He's so inspired he creates a song. And this is a real warning for us, my brothers and sisters, because people don't do the wrong thing for wrong reasons. They do the wrong thing for right reasons. Things that appear right to them. Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he had the right reasons for doing what he did. Pol Pot in Cambodia. These are all extreme circumstances. You know, the trade towers. We see it as the wrong thing, but they were doing it for what they saw as the right reasons. This goes right back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, you will don't eat of that tree because if you do eat of the tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you know what that actually means? It means you will conceptualize what is good and what is evil. So you get to decide what is good and what is evil. So if I have to kill a man because he's wounded me, I'll say that's right. I will say that's right. If I have to, like this show I've been watching on Netflix, Dirty Money, if I have to lie about my defeat devices on my Volkswagen, by the way, my Amarok is smoggy but good, well, I watched this, I watched this thing, you know, where you'd know, the Volkswagen saga. You know, they had defeat devices to um, fool the EPA's uh, anti-pollution kind of um, mechanisms and so forth. And when Volkswagen found out, that they knew about the defeat devices, instead of fixing the problem, do you know what they did? They came up with better defeat devices. <laughs> and they thought they were doing the right thing. They were protecting the company. You know, Lance Armstrong thought he was doing the right thing as he literally bullied his way through a whole bunch of people that knew he was doping. They knew he was doping the whole time. He just bullied his way through, brought out lawsuits after lawsuit. Why? Because for, right, for the right reasons in his head, he was happy to do that. And we've got to be so careful because oftentimes, you know, we might be involved in certain things of a lesser scale and we're thinking that we're right and we're not. And that's why I say again, would we open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit? And do you see what's missing in the line of Cain? I'll just put this up there. This is the passage, just a screen grab of the passage. Do you see what's missing in the line of Cain? What's that? God, thank you, Nadine. You're always good for it. I don't even like tee you up beforehand and you, that's wonderful. If you have a look in that passage, literally, there's not one single mention of God. You've got humanity, accomplishments, leading to murder, power structures, etc., etc. in society. There's not one mention of God. But do you notice what the passage does? It's, it's an incredibly vivid move and contrast, and it's there very deliberately. Do you see what it does after verse 24? If Cain is to be avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 77 times Verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again. She gave birth to a son, named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in place of Abel since Cain 
killed him. And then verse 26, a son was born to Seth also, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Began to call on the name of the Lord. So you've got Cain's line, accomplishing all this stuff. It's pretty much godless, leading to murder. And then all of a sudden, the writer flips it around and goes, let's look at Seth. Let's look at Seth's line. And he begins straight away with God. God is the one that has brought a son. And at that point, they begin to call on the name of Yahweh. It's a stunning contrast, really. And we can quickly see that if we look at the rest of the Bible where that calling on the Lord kind of picture is seen, it's a call, it's a yearning, it's a desire, it's a love even for Yahweh. It's a, it's a gripping of the heart. You know, in 1 Kings, we see that same passage again. You will call on the name of your God, but I will call on the name of Yahweh, the God who answers with fire. He is God. Anyone know who said that? Elijah. Elijah. And he's telling the Israelites, call on the name of God. Psalm 116 says, I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of Yahweh. And the rest of that psalm is all about this love, this desire for God. And that leads us to what I think is a grand truth and a sad truth, right? Because you've got now the line of Seth that's filled with such hope. Just like the line of Cain, they're given grace. In some way, God has brought this child. We don't know whether maybe Eve's just speaking metaphorically or not, or whether God was involved in some way. We don't really know, but this child is brought. It's all within the hues of God, in, 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 in the framework of God's help, God's grace, God's truth, God's love. People call on the name of the Lord. It's a grand truth, isn't it? But it's also a sad truth. But let's just look at sort of the grand side of it for now. So if you look at Genesis 5, as we keep moving through the passage, these are the family records of the descendants of Adam. On that day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created him, them, them, male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them man. What was, have we heard this before somewhere? Yes, we have. It's this reminder. Isn't it interesting? It's this reminder. It goes from Cain's line, all corrupt, murdering, Seth's line. And it's like, hey, I need to remind you that you are in the image of God. You are in the image of God. And so we're associated immediately with that first account where we're told humanity is made, male and female, in the image of God. And now we're reminded again that as, Cain, uh, as Adam and Eve have children, they too are in the image of God. But there's something more going on as well. Because if you think about it, not one mention of God in Cain's line. Seth's line is full of mentions of God and God's work of grace and so forth. And what do we see there? What do we see is like Cain, in so much as they end up with murderers, people that are selfish, looking after, one, looking after themselves before anyone else, power structures, you know what we end up with there? A de-imaged humanity, literally. It's almost like the, the two passages are in contrast. So it's saying, listen, when you act this way, when you act like murderers, when you are in it for yourselves, you are de-imaged. You are not bearing the image of God. You are not acting like God would. But when you call on God, when there is um, that love and that grace that then flows out through you, you are well and truly image bearers. And you know, so what does that mean for us? Because we're not murderers, are we? I don't think so. And I'm not going to go down the line of, well, you know, you could be a murderer. Well, you could, I think, in the right circumstances. 
But what does it mean for us just very simply in our day-to-day lives? Well, I think an application, a very plain application is whenever we do not conduct ourselves in a way that bears a reflection to who God is, we are de-imaged. So, for example, let's say you're a Christian and yet, and yet what's really gripping your heart is all the city building stuff. So you're all about getting the next house. You're all about kind of, I don't know, building up your, up your, 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 your superannuation. And like that's, there's nothing wrong with those things. But when that becomes your guide, when that becomes your driver, you're not going to care about other people necessarily. Other people are going to become servants to you. They need to get in line with your goal, your objective in life. And in that point, you're de-imaged. You know, sometimes we're really proud of our cultures. Sometimes we're really proud of our corporate cultures, our family cultures, our city cultures, our, our Australian culture. But if you put your hope and your trust in that, and now other people begin to suffer because of it, you are de-imaged. You're de-imaged if you put your trust in entertainment and music and popular culture, and you just live for the weekend, going to see the next movie, getting out and about, um, down to the Goldie or whatever. Again, none of those things are wrong in themselves. But if that has become your guide, if that has become your driver, other people will now become, in a sense, servants of that around you. You won't be wanting to serve other people. And in that moment, you'll be de-imaged. You put your trust in agriculture and nature and get out and about and do this and do that. Again, you'll be de-imaged if that has become your one and only driver. You know, whenever there isn't tangible love in the church you realize this we don't we're de-imaged and I, I was talking to Tim about this yesterday I honestly believe one of the biggest evangelical problems that the church has in terms of its message and the veracity of its message is we don't love one another in a tangible way and so we are de-imaged and Jesus himself said they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another that, that that's a picture book thing that's not a word book thing. That's a picture. You, you can say you love one another. You can talk about community. I mean, it's such a cliche almost these days. But the sad truth is, if you don't truly show it, then de-imaged. And so Seth the Third is really interesting because, like I said, it's a grand truth and it's a sad truth. The grand truth is if you compare the fifth from Lamech, sorry, the fifth from Cain with the fifth from Seth, so the fifth kind of descendant, do you know who we get? Anyone know who the fifth from um, Seth is? This cool dude, Enoch. Enoch walked with God and he was not there because God took him. So if you trace out the trajectory of Cain and you trace out the trajectory of um, Seth, what you see is Enoch. And so Enoch is he's contrasted to Lamech. Enoch walks with God. So if he walks with God, by definition, he's a follower of God. And you kind of have to wonder, I can almost imagine, see, Enoch is the grandson of Adam. Adam's still alive at this time. Adam's still alive when Enoch's taken, if you do the math, Adam's still alive when Enoch's actually taken from, from the earth in some way. And I'm not sure exactly how that works. But, so you can almost imagine him you know, sitting with his grandfather. Tell me about Eden. Tell me about when you walked with God in the garden. Tell me about him. And something grips Enoch's heart. And he, despite the deterioration of society around him, he begins to follow God. He wants to know more about God. He reaches out to God and in some way God reaches back to him and he's then called a God walker, a walker with God. But you know what the sad truth is? You know, you can see kind of glimmers of light through Seth's line. The sad truth, though, 
in, in, in mixed in with that grand truth is this. Um, we get to Noah at the tail end, and everyone knows Noah, right? The flood. So who goes into that ark? Is it all of Seth's line? No, this is the sad truth. Noah and seven others. So Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. That's it. And if you have a look, you'll see Methuselah, grandfather of Noah, Lamech, another Lamech, a different Lamech, the father of Noah. They don't go into the ark. And we're told in that lineage that there are other sons and daughters that are born to each of those fathers. You'll see it repeated. And they had other sons and daughters. And they had other sons and daughters. And they had other sons and daughters. But only eight go into the ark. God says, God's word says that Noah's a righteous man. He's blameless amongst his contemporaries. Noah walked with God, just like Enoch. And Enoch, Noah's great-great-great-grandfather, Maybe Noah even remembered. Maybe it was a story that was told. We don't know. But in some way, Noah's heart was gripped to the point with under extreme duress and stress and cultural pressure, he walked with God. That is so cool. But like I said, it's also so sad because Adam fathered other sons and daughters. Nine times we're told his descendants fathered other sons and daughters. And yet in Genesis 6-5, you know what we're told? We are told that every heart, every inclination of their heart was evil. Now, I've just put this table up. I don't expect you to look at it all. But the table just simply shows that um, Seth died just before Noah was born. So Seth got to see Enoch. He got to actually see the way the world went, including Seth's, Seth's line. It must be. Otherwise, they'd be in the ark as well. And again, we get to Genesis 6-5. And every inclination of the thought is evil. Every inclination and thoughts of the heart are evil all the time. I mean, imagine that. Imagine if I'm standing here before you, I'm preaching a sermon, but in my heart is just evil. I'm just, I'm just wanting to use you. I'm wanting to use you to help me build my city. I'm wanting to use you so you can be in my army. I'm wanting to use you so I can kind of rip you off and get more money for my nice, cushy kind of um, house on the range. And I'm just, you know, the old thing, if you can fake, fake authenticity, you can fake anything. Everything within me is now just about me. Imagine a whole world like that. Imagine now that that call, remember they began to call in the name of Yahweh, that call has fallen silent except in Noah's family. That walk has grown cold. There's, there's no one. The Noah film was pretty atrocious in terms of its theology, but in terms of its picture of depravity of humanity, wow, it's worth seeing the film just to see that where everyone is just in it for themselves and there's terrible atrocities that are going on. And, you know, this call to Yahweh, this walk with Yahweh, it's a grand truth, but it's a sad truth. There's so many, so many people don't, don't follow it. They, they're not gripped by it. So how does God see this? How does God see you? I just want to say that your misperceptions aren't an innocuous thing. They're not something that's not going to harm you. They are profoundly consequential. If you don't call on God, even if you don't believe in God, in your humanity, you are de-imaging literally every moment, every wrinkle, every sort of ailment, decay. Less life, less love, less amargo day without calling on God, without the power of God in you. 
This is a scientific fact. Just monitor yourself over the next few decades. It will bear out. And maybe God should just leave you as you are. Maybe he should just do a Lamech and go, I'm going to sing a song about my glory and how this has ratcheted up my glory. Instead, what does he do? How does he see you? You know, what grips God's heart? That's the real question. What grips God's heart? Genesis 6.6 says this, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Like, some people want to just go, oh, that's an anthropomorphism. So that's a way of, I know it's a big word. I'm glad I got it out, actually. <laughs> um, so that's a way where people project their own humanity onto God and begin to attribute human features to God. Well, this is God's word, right? So we all believe it to be reliable and we believe it to be truth. Well, it says here that God was grieved that he had made man and his heart was filled with pain. And we can imagine a good father who looks at his children and they're all fighting, angry. They're just into each other. And he's thinking, it's, we don't know what lengths God has already gone to to try and redeem them. And now all of a sudden it's just leading up to the flood. It's just, it's got to be done. And yet he finds Noah. Noah is still gripped by this love for God. Noah is found to be righteous. Righteousness never comes from behavioral traits and trying to emulate behavioral traits. It always comes from the heart. It always comes from that which grips you. And he's grieved. God is grieved. And we, we can ask again, you know, what grips God's heart as we look through all of the Bible? You know, God isn't just grieved in his heart and going, oh, oh this is terrible. It, it, time to judge. He actually crosses the cosmos <laughs> and we find him thousands of years later kneeling down at the feet of his betrayer, Judas, washing his feet, washing the feet of the disciples. He served for three years, served, healed, loved under incredible duress. He's caring for his mother on the cross. He's caring for the disciples. He's praying for his enemies. This is the ultimate revelation of God. This is the ultimate revelation of his heart. This is the ultimate revelation of what grips God's heart. I'm sorry I get a bit excited, but I kind of feel like if we don't see this and we don't grow into this, then there is just decay for us. God is willing in Jesus Christ to be grieved by nails, a spear, a jagged crown of thorns, He's willing to endure the blood, the screams, the anguish, the torture, the rasping breath and death. That's breathtaking, isn't it? Isn't that breathtaking? Like it kind of slams you in the, in the, in the chest when you think about it. And you, and you juxtapose that against the God of the Bible. And we know that if we will take Jesus Christ, the image of Jesus Christ and everything that he's done and everything that he's revealed and we put it on to God, we know what level of grief must there have been as God looked at his children and decided that it had to end. And we don't know. We don't know what hope there is for them afterwards. We don't know. There's some indications in the Bible about that. We can't build any doctrines on it, but it's very interesting. And, you know, what's really interesting to me as well is that you're essentially either going to be like Cain and Lamech or you're going to be a God walker like Enoch. There's no, there's no in-betweens. There's no sitting on the fence. Like I've said many times before, this fence is pointy and sharp. You can't sit on it. You'll be on one side or the other. You need to understand that if you are, um, I don't know, just sort of happy with the lethargy in your heart, 
Are you happy with apathy? If you're happy just not to feel things, if you're happy just to be using the excuse of busyness and so forth, you're not sitting on the fence. You're not neutral. You're not Switzerland. You're either in Lamex ilk or you are in Seth and Enoch and Noah's ilk. There's no in between. And so just to moderate that a little bit, you're either on that trajectory away from God or you're on a trajectory towards him. And I know, I know that because of what Jesus has done, he has re-imaged us. And John again, you know, in John it says, Jesus, well, Jesus says this, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That will be the, the fellowship of the burning heart. Hey, I don't know, like, where are we at with all this? And I kind of stand up here, preach, get sweaty, look at you guys. I've known you guys for so long now, most of you. You know me, you know my flaws, I probably know many of your flaws. But, like, I don't know, is it possible, is it possible for us to be that fellowship of the burning heart? Like, do you think it's possible? If I took you aside one-on-one and... I don't know, I just, I don't know, I guess I just want to be a bit raw with you. But I love Tozer's quote. I hadn't got to read it in full, but let me read it to you. In one of his writings, he said this, I'm looking for the fellowship of the burning heart. I claim the Methodists and the Baptists as mine. I claim everybody that loves Jesus Christ as mine. But I'm looking for the fellowship of the burning heart. Men and women of all generations and everywhere that love the Saviour until adoration has become the new word, and they do not have to be entertained or amused. This Christ is everything. He is their all in all. I am looking for men and women who are lost in worship, those who love God until he is the sweetheart of the soul. <laughs> That's an, only, only as A.W. Tozer could write. I'm looking for men and women who are lost in worship, those who love God until he's the sweetheart of the soul. Now make no mistake about this. I'm not talking about cool love songs here, even though they were so great. Thank you. I'm talking about Monday morning. Talk about Wednesday morning where there's this sense of being anchored to God, this sense of love for God, this sense of wanting to share with people your life, serve people. You are imaging God. That's what Jesus meant, I am sure, when he said you will be salt and light. You'll be the image of God. The image of God in the workplace when it gets tough, when it gets hard. And so again, I ask you, you know, what, what grips your heart? What grips your heart? Let me pray.